Well, good morning, everyone. You are invisible to me, but I know you're out there. Let's pray together. Lord, we praise you and we bless your name because we still have freedom to worship you and we can do it in our homes, not as we wish, but we can still do it to the praise of your glory. And so, Lord, you have commanded us to give thanks not only in everything, but for everything. And so we thank you for how you are working in our hearts and challenging us in fresh ways because of this current trial in this world. Pray, Father, that we would draw closer to you in the midst of it, and that you, Father, would show your Son to be glorious, that many would find him to be so as they hear the gospel and turn to him. These things, Father, we pray as we ask that you bless the preaching of your word now. Amen and amen. Well, the history of the church has been a history of a scattered people from the very beginning. It's always been this way uh, for different reasons, to be sure. In Rome, the Jews, the Jewish Christians were scattered. Uh, Jews in general were scattered, but certainly the Christians were scattered again and again. After the the stoning of Stephen, there was a, a, a dispersion of people who were not able to gather in the temple as they once did in a large crowd, but now they had to gather in their homes, and they shared the breaking of bread and, and relished the apostles' teaching and prayer, and they had sweet, sweet fellowship. And while that may not be true of us collectively as a full church this morning, I know that so many of you are out there and watching and have already been fellowshipping with one another. And so we praise God for you, and we want you to be encouraged by the word this morning. And we don't know how long this current season of uh, coronavirus will last, but we are trusting the Lord, and we are leaning on one another, and we are still eager to hear from God. And so let's hear from God this morning. Turn in your Bibles if you have one, and I hope you have one. Did you come to church or to the home where the church is with your Bible? I hope so. If not, just get on your phone. There's probably one there. And turn with me to the book of Colossians chapter 1. There was some uh, perhaps just criticism when I started Colossians that I was moving too quickly. I suspect there's probably some Maybe just criticism that I'm now moving too slowly. Pace has always been an issue for me, but that's okay. Uh, I want to squeeze everything out of this that we can. And so this morning we want to look at a number of different scriptures. But if you have your Bible, let's, let's begin with Colossians chapter 1. The story of the life of Paul is a fascinating one for a number of reasons. And one of those reasons is the fact that unlike the other apostles, Paul, was his God-given mission was not to reach the Jews necessarily. Yes, the gospel, he understood, was for the Jews first. But repeatedly, again and again and again, the, re the Jews rejected his gospel. And so Paul, as the Lord had told him through Ananias at the very beginning, uh, in Damascus, Paul would be the apostle to the Gentiles. And so it is. He would be the one to deliver the message of the gospel primarily to Gentiles. Now, in a predominantly Gentile church such as ours, if you didn't know that, then you should know it, that we are not a Jewish congregation. Therefore, we are a Gentile congregation. And so when we talk about Paul reaching the Gentiles, we don't see that as any, any great big deal. This is the only Christianity we've ever known. In Paul's day, however, it was scandalous that he, a Jew, a predominant Jew, a Pharisee, and a rabbi would go out of his way to reach the Gentiles. It was scandalous, and frankly, it got him in a lot of trouble. Well, Paul was willing to take the risks in order to fulfill his calling. I suggested to you last time 
that the passage before us can be divided into two neat sections, namely, what a faithful pastor, or in this case, an apostle, right? What a faithful pastor is and what a faithful pastor does. And last time, we focused on the first, what a faithful pastor is. And we learned that a faithful pastor is a servant of the church. He is a minister called by God, and he is a herald of the truth, regardless of how people respond. In the second part of this passage, uh, we labeled what a pastor does. And I mentioned three specific things. A faithful pastor, or in Paul's case, a faithful apostle, preaches the mystery, he shepherds the flock, and he labors for their maturity. Now, I have to confess to you this morning, however, that I got so enraptured by the first point that I never really made it to the others. There's so much spiritual treasure here it felt like I had stumbled into Aladdin's cave. Everywhere I looked, there was gold and precious jewels. And so this morning, we're only going to have time to rifle through one treasure chest. We'll, we'll come back and do two more next week. But one treasure chest for this morning, and that treasure chest is called mystery. It's called mystery. And so a faithful pastor preaches the mystery. Now, since you're all good students of the Bible, I'm sure your question this morning is, okay, so what is the mystery? And that is a great question. In fact, I hope to answer it and have been wrestling with this for weeks. And the church has wrestled with this issue for as long as theologians have, have sought to understand the New Testament. In fact, I, I intend to answer it by showing you what I believe to be two kinds of treasure contained in the chest called mystery, namely the mystery of Christ and secondly, the mystery of the church. The mystery of Christ and the mystery of the church. If, if I were to rename this, had time to rename this, I would call it the mystery of the kingdom and the mystery of the church, and you'll see why here in a moment. Now, before we dive into this divine treasure chest, let's stand together. Now, those of you who are at home, do your best. I guess you can stand together in honor of the word of the Lord and um, follow along with me as I read Colossians 1, 24 through 29. Listen to the word of the Lord. Paul writes, therefore, Excuse me, I'm in the wrong chapter. Here we go. Verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And we proclaim him, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature or complete in Christ for this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word, and you can be seated. It's a wonderful passage of scripture. I find myself just driving around in the car listening to the book of Colossians. Even this morning on the way in, I'd already done all the study. I've had two weeks to look at it and work on it. And even on the way in, just listening to uh, these four chapters, uh, not hardly enough time to get four chapters in between my house and here, but just the richness of it all and the exaltation of Christ in it. And so let me just tell you ahead of time, I, I want you to look for Christ in this. I want you to see the glory of Christ because Paul wants you to see the preeminent Christ through this whole book, but certainly here. Now, in verse 25, Paul says that his God-given goal is to make the word of God fully known. 
to give full scope to it, to proclaim it, to complete it, to finish it, to tell it completely. In other words, the faithful pastor proclaims the whole counsel of God, not merely the parts that he is especially drawn to, but all of the Word of God. In verse 26, then, Paul continues to make the Word of God fully known by talking to the Colossians about something called a mystery. Now, what is a biblical mystery? Well, in the Bible, the term mystery consists of divine truth that can only be learned by revelation of God. G.K. Beale explains that the Greek word here for mystery does not express something that was completely unknown, but something that was only partially understood in the Old Testament. One of the things that was partly revealed in the Old Testament was that one day Christ would come and he would set up his kingdom. And the Jews always looked forward to that. Even the apostles, they kept saying, is it now you're going to set up your kingdom? Is it now you're going to set up your kingdom? And even after the resurrection, they came to him and said, is it now the resurrection? And he told them, cool your jets, guys. Don't worry about that. It's not for you to know the times and the seasons. Only the Father knows that. But he reveals everything we need to know. And one of the things that even the Old Testament believers needed to know was that one day Christ would set up his kingdom. One day he would come. But the details of this in the Old Testament were not fully known. The Old Testament prophets mentioned it, but it was not until we get to the New Testament that it becomes clear. Now, before we go on, I, I want you to know that as a pastor-teacher, my job is not merely to unpack a passage of Scripture according to its immediate context, but also to show how Paul's message falls into the grand narrative of the Scriptures as a whole. And so I want to take some time here to do that. As I was in the hunt for the grand narrative of Scripture that applies to what Paul is doing in our passage, my search took me all the way back to the book of Daniel. So for a few minutes, I'd like for you to, to keep your finger here in Colossians chapter 1, but flip back with me uh, to Daniel, Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 2, because in Daniel chapter 2, we find one of the great Daniel stories of the Old Testament. And this particular narrative is the one about Nebuchadnezzar's dream. You'll remember that one night, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and he assumed that it was from God, and he assumed rightly, and he needed someone to interpret it. Um, and so what he did was he called all of his wise men and told him, tell me the dream, and then tell me the interpretation. But none of them could even figure out what the dream was, let alone what the dream meant. And this provoked serious anger in King Nebuchadnezzar. Here these men claimed to be magicians. Here they claimed to be able to see into the future and divine certain things that could not be known aside from revelation. And yet they could not even identify what his dream was. And just as he was about to have all the wise men, including Daniel, Shadrach, and Meshach, and Abednego, killed as frauds, Daniel was brought in to save the day. Daniel and his three friends had spent the night in prayer asking God to reveal the dream and the interpretation to Daniel, which God did. Let's pick up the story in verse 25. This is Daniel chapter 2, verse 25, and we'll read through the beginning of 28. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the ex exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. And the king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Now, listen to Daniel's response. Daniel answered to the king and said, No, no wise men 
enchanters or magicians or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king is asked. But there is a God. This is one of those great but God sections of scripture. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he is made known to the king, to King Nebuchadnezzar, what will be in the latter days. There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, he says. Now notice that mystery is not something that God in his wisdom was able to figure out. Rather, it was his own sovereign cosmic plan for the ages. It was his sovereign plan that he established before the creation of the world, but had not yet revealed. And what specifically did God reveal to Daniel? Before we answer that, can we just relish that for a minute? Can we just think about the fact that God has everything under control? And that even what Nebuchadnezzar saw and the interpretation of it, the goodness and the wickedness of it all, and all the things that would happen in Daniel's life, I mean, thrown in the lion's den. For us, it's the coronavirus. Listen, God, in the mystery of his providence, has ordained that from the creation of the world. And I know we as a church, we believe these things. But it's good to remind ourselves, it's good to remind our hearts that God is in control. But here is what we read in verse 28. The mystery God was revealing was, watch this, what will be in the latter days? What will be in the latter days? In theological terms, we call this an eschatological revelation. It is something that will happen in the eschaton. It will happen in the last days or when the end of time comes. God was revealing to a, to a Gentile king this gets really interesting, the connections here. Paul is writing to a Gentile church, right? The Jews hate the Gentiles. We'll see that in a minute. But God chooses to reveal his eternal plan, at least a part of it, to a Gentile. And he has a Jewish prophet interpret it for him. It's just marvelous what God does. It's just, it's just got to make you smile. Are you smiling out there? I can't help, I mean, I can't see you, but I know we got uh, nine people in this room who are smiling. Thank you for that. And an amen now and then would help me remember that you're out there. Okay, so in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, he saw an image whose head was gold, its chest and arms were silver, the middle and thighs were bronze, the legs were iron, and its feet part iron and part clay. Each of these four sections represented, listen, each of the four sections represented a major kingdom in history. But then, according to the dream, a great rock, look at verse 34, a, gr a great rock not cut by human hands came. What do you mean it came? Well, he doesn't say. I get this, this, this image of like it, it, Mount St. Helens or something, this this rock, it's belched out of the earth and it comes and it smashes the statue. It is a, notice how he describes it, this great rock not cut by human hands came and struck the feet of the image and it collapsed. It means all of those kingdoms collapsed. And then the stone became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. You feeling the mystery? Does this sound like mystery? Now, fast forward to uh, verses 44 and 45. 44 and 45. Daniel explains that the great rock that destroyed all the other kingdoms was a final superior kingdom that, note this, that shall never be destroyed and it shall stand forever. This is a kingdom that will not be destroyed and will continue to stand, how long? 
forever. Beloved, this is the mystery. This is the mystery. It is God's sovereign plan for the world revealed by God to a Gentile king and interpreted or delivered by a Jewish prophet. And what I want to submit to you here this morning is that the mystery Paul is revealing to the church of Colossae, at least in part, was the same mystery that Nebuchadnezzar saw. I'm not saying he saw a statue. And we don't have time to get into linguistics here, but in, in this section of Colossians, if you compare what Daniel said and what Paul is saying, it's clear that he's borrowing words from this text. And so I, what I want you to see here is Paul's hope is Daniel's hope. What Paul looked forward to, remember he talked about resurrection? If it were not for the resurrection, living like I live would be foolish. It's the same thing. It's a future kingdom. It's a kingdom. So Paul's revealing to the church in Colossae, at least in part, the same mystery, that there would come a kingdom that shall never be destroyed and will stand forever. God's ultimate plan for the ages is that this kingdom, this eternal kingdom, would be forever. Now let me take a few more minutes to show you what I mean. When we look back in the Old Testament to Deuteronomy 32, we, we discover something about this great rock. This isn't the only time of the significance of a rock is mentioned in Scripture, and I'm only going to touch on a few. Deuteronomy 32, we find Moses, the prophet Moses, also talking about a great rock. Listen to what Moses says in Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. The rock, his work is perfect. Isn't that interesting? A personal pronoun after rock. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness, without iniquity, just and upright is he. Who? This rock. And this is Moses the prophet speaking of God, Yahweh, as the rock. And this is not the only other place in the Bible where we find God referring to a significant rock. So significant, in fact, that he is God. In Psalm 18, 1 and 2, David, I, I, I love this passage, and you'll probably remember when Ernie Baker was here and preached it. Um, someone once said that uh, there are no psalms in the Bible that say to God, I love you, like modern Christians say that to God. And I would say uh, it doesn't happen very much, but it does happen here once in Psalm 18, 1 and 2. And this is what the psalmist says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord, Yahweh, is my, what? Rock. All right, say it with me. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge. Listen, whatever you take refuge in is your God, no matter what it is. And David is saying, I love my rock. I love the rock. He's my refuge. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. It's the same thing. Clearly, the rock in this text is none other than Yahweh, the second person of the Trinity. And then we see in Psalm 118, 22 and 23, the stone, listen, see if this phrase, this verse sounds familiar. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This rock, this stone, is what the builders rejected, but God declared it to be the cornerstone. Beloved, can anyone doubt that the stone the psalmist was referring to is God himself? Well, if there is any doubt, then let me put it to rest by referring to Matthew 12, verse 10, which reads as follows. Have you not read in the scriptures... Now, that's a really interesting question. 
because the only scriptures they had were Old Testament scriptures. Have you not read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? Only here, only here, Jesus, not the psalmist, it is Jesus who is speaking. He's the one speaking, and he is referring, get this, he is referring to himself. And if, he, if we had time this morning, we could see this phrase, this same verse repeated in its exact words in Luke 20, 17, in Matthew 21, 10, in Ephesians 2, 20, in uh, 1 Peter, is it 1 Peter? It is, uh, yes, 1 Peter uh, 2, 6, and 7, in Acts 4, 11, and if that were not enough, consider this, 1 Corinthians 10, 4. Paul is making an argument using the experience of Israel in the wilderness, and he writes this, they all ate from the same spiritual food, and they all drank from the same spiritual rock, same, I'm sorry, same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And, he says, are you ready for this? That rock was Christ. That rock was Christ. Oh, beloved, the significance can hardly be overstated. The rock called the cornerstone, the rock from which Israel drank, the rock David loved, the rock that Moses spoke of, and the rock that crushed the nations in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, all of them are the same rock, and that rock is Christ. He is Christ. And the question before us this morning is, what is God doing with this rock? What is God doing with the rock? Well, Daniel's the first one to tell us. By means of this rock, Jesus Christ, God is fulfilling his sovereign purposes in the world and establishing a kingdom that will stand forever and never be destroyed. Isn't that glorious? I love living in America. But folks, this is a garbage can compared to what we're going to have in the kingdom. No more crying, no more tears, no more disease, no flu, no coronavirus, no plague, no car accidents, no cancer, no loneliness. Mm. Do you understand why I said I felt like I stumbled into Aladdin's cave? And there's more. This, beloved, is the revelation of the eschatological future. One day we will all hear Jesus the King say to us, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom. Inherit the kingdom which was prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I'm telling you, what Paul is talking about is the same thing Daniel was talking about. Jesus He's building a kingdom. And Jesus, by the way, repeatedly re preached the message of the kingdom. He said things like, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Matthew 3, 2. And blessed are the poor in spirit. That is, blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And to you, he says in Matthew 13, 11, to you has been granted to know the secrets, the mystery of the kingdom of heaven. And this is what Paul is saying. Paul's not saying something new here. He is pointing to what Jesus already revealed, that he is establishing an eternal kingdom. And so Daniel was speaking of Christ's kingdom in the eschatological future, Jesus was speaking about the kingdom of the eschatological future. Paul also has the eschatological future kingdom in mind when he wrote Colossians. And I'll give you a few examples of that. Colossians 1.20, one day Christ will reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. Do you see kingdom there? Christ is reconciling all things. That means he's 
He's king. One day, he will present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. What is, what is that a reference to? He is going to present us to the Father when? In the kingdom. When we see him. In fact, Paul says he hopes in, in chapter 1, verse 28, to present everyone mature in Christ. Paul is thinking about that day in the kingdom. When Christ appears, chapter 3, verse 4, you will appear with him in glory. That's kingdom language. On that day, chapter 3, verse 24, from the Lord, you will receive the inheritance of your reward. That's kingdom. That's kingdom language. Oh, beloved, what I'm telling you is that we live the way we live, and God calls us to live the way we've talked about recently, taking risks for the glory of God and the gospel of God. This is why we can do it. We are secure in Christ. We have a better home, a better kingdom, a better inheritance waiting for us, and we can never die. We can never die. All of these eschatological promises and more will be fulfilled when Jesus Christ, the God-man, which, which is a really big deal in Colossians. It's a great mystery to them that God could be God and man, that Jesus could be man and God. But Jesus Christ is God-man. When he comes, he will welcome us into his kingdom, the very kingdom Daniel foretold, a kingdom that will stand forever and never be destroyed. Oh, my friends, Christ is Lord of that kingdom. And one day, we will be presented before him as complete in Christ. Not complete because we made ourselves perfect, not because we attained anything, but because of the the great mercy of God by which we have been justified and washed, cleaned. The dominant theme in Paul's letter to the Colossians is the preeminence of Christ. He wants the Colossians to know that Jesus is above all. And so after this, after all this, he makes it makes sense that he would say in Colossians 2, verse 2, the mystery, okay, so we started with the question, what is the mystery? And here how, here's how Paul answers it. The mystery is Christ. The mystery is Christ. You say, I, I thought you were saying the mystery was the kingdom. Yes, but there would be no kingdom without a king, and he is ruler over it all. The mystery is Christ. He's the eternal king who rules over an eternal kingdom. And if you know him, you are already a citizen of that kingdom because chapter 1 verse 13 reads, God the Father has delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred you into the what? The kingdom of his beloved son. The kingdom of his beloved son. This is the great historical narrative that forms the basis of Paul's exaltation of Christ in the letter to the Colossians. And every faithful pastor preaches it. The mystery of the kingdom is the mystery of Christ. Second, we've seen the mystery of the kingdom that is Christ who it's creating a kingdom. Secondly, we see the mystery of the church. And let's go back to Colossians chapter 1 again. When we speak about the mystery of the church, Paul was not saying that the church itself was a mystery, but that the makeup of the church was a mystery. At least in this context, I think that's what he's saying, and I, and I, think, I, I hope to demonstrate that to you. The prophet Daniel revealed the mystery of Christ as 
one who would bring the kingdom, and now the apostle is revealing the mystery of the church, namely, that it would not be made up exclusively of Jews, but Jews and Gentiles together. Now, that's like saying water and fire together, or oil and water together, or Arabs and Jews together. I mean, that's exactly what he's talking about. I think I'd, uh, some of you know that there used to be a man in our congregation, was a member here, he was, he was Arab. And when I met him, his name's George, uh, and, and Joy, George is still a beloved brother, lives in this community. And when he visited Calvary for the first time and told me where he was from, I asked, I asked him, where are you from? And he said, uh, I'm from, I'm from um, Gaza. And I meant, you mean like Gaza on the Mediterranean? And he said, yeah. And I said, and, and you're a Christian? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, how did you become a Christian? Where? And he said, Gaza Baptist Church. <laughs> he said, it's the only one. I said, I bet it's the only one. That's amazing. Look, Jews, and can you imagine being a part of that church? Living not only in a Gentile community, but a hostile Gentile community. And yet there they are, standing between Israel, on the one hand, that, that hates Christ, and the Arabs, on the other hand, who hate Christ. And there's the church, right in the middle of that. I know that church is had serious problems, and I wonder if they're still there. But this is, this is the picture. So the prophet Daniel revealed the mystery of the kingdom over which Christ rules. Now the apostle is revealing the mystery of the church, namely that there would not be only Jews in the church, but Gentiles as well. And so Colossians 1, 26 and 27. In fact, let's pick up in, in uh, verse uh, 20. At the end of verse 25, and here is what we read. Verse 25, let's just for context, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me, Paul said, for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery. So, one thing we know, whatever the mystery is, it is the word of God. It is from the word of God. So, make fully known the mystery hidden. For ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, to them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is remarkable, to say the least. Um, God is building his church. And it's not what anyone thought it would be. And we should be reminded that in chapter 1, verse 20, Paul says that Jesus will one day reconcile all things to himself. I take that to mean the entire cosmos and everything in it will be set in its proper place. It doesn't mean that every person will be saved. It doesn't mean that uh, the, the uh, rebellious angels will be saved. We don't believe in universalism. We don't think the scriptures teach that, but rather everyone and everything will be put in its proper place by Jesus. And then we should notice in 1 verses 21 and 22 that the Gentiles who were alienated and hostile to God and his people, Jesus has now reconciled them to himself in his fleshly body through death. It's interesting that he says that he's, he's going to reconcile the cosmos and he's doing it by his death, by his blood and death. And he does the same thing with lost sinners, both Jews and Gentiles. So this king who is setting up a kingdom is going to reconcile all things, the entire cosmos to himself and he's reconciling sinners to himself and specifically he is he is reconciling Jews and Gentiles. And that means it's the same thing as to say from every, every, every country, every language, every kindred, every tongue, all the peoples, all the peoples, representatives of all the peoples, some from every land will be reconciled to himself in his fleshly body through death. 
And now that he has reconciled Gentiles and is reconciling Gentiles, he intends to glorify himself by bringing the two hostile groups into one man called, you know the answer, right? The church. The church. Now think of it. Think of it like this. Let's do a little history. For ages and generations, Israel was the unique object of God's blessing. Yes, he talked about the Gentiles coming. Even, even the psalmist would pray, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let the peoples, he's, he's meaning not just Jews but Gentiles as well. So there were hints of it along the way. But for ages and generation, generations, Israel was the unique object of God's blessing. To them, he gave the law. To them, he gave the prophets. To them, he gave the promises. To them, he gave a land. To them, he gave the covenant, the temple, the sacrifices, and in the end, he would even give them his son, whom they would kill. From the beginning, there was a division between the people of Israel and the people of the world. The Jews despised, not just tolerate, I mean, despised Gentiles. Jonah typified the hostile attitude that Jews maintained toward their Gentile neighbors. When God sent him to preach to the Ninevites, Jonah found passage on a boat heading in the exact opposite direction. When the Lord used a great fish to help encourage his willingness to go, he preached to them only under compulsion, in fear of his life. When the Ninevites repented, though, even though it was the greatest revival in human history, Jonah was greatly displeased, even so much so that he dared to complain to the Lord about the whole affair. He was scandalized that God would rescue, that God would reconcile Gentiles. Some Jews believed that God created Gentiles merely to use as fuel in hell. Many believed God loved Israel and hated the other nations. Consequently, some of the women who were midwives refused to help non-Jewish women give birth because to do so would to make them responsible for bringing another despised Gentile into the world. Whenever a Jew returned from, a, from a someplace outside the Holy Land, he would come back in. Before he crossed over the line, as it were, he would shake the dust off his sandals and his clothing in order not to contaminate Israel from the lands of the Gentiles. Because Samaritans, who were partly Jew and partly Gentile, because they were partly Gentile, if you were traveling and you came to Samaria, you didn't go through it. Which was why it was astounding, uh, the whole story of the woman on the, in the well, at the well, because that was in Samaria. And the text says... Jesus had to go through Samaria. Why? Because he had an appointment that led to the great revival among the Samaritans. But the Jews hated the Samaritans. They would go far, far out of their way to avoid them. If a young Jewish man or woman married a Gentile, their families would have a funeral service, symbolizing the death of their child as far as re religion, race, and family are concerned. And for fear of contamination, many Jews will not enter the home of a Gentile or allow Gentiles to enter their home. In fact, Peter once explained to a Roman centurion, Cornelius, and his household, quote, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. Amazing thing was, he was standing in Cornelius' house because God told him to. With all of that in mind, perhaps we can understand why the Great Commission was such a radical intrusion upon the competing cultures. Jesus declared, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. And notice, all authority, all authority. What's he saying? I'm king, I'm king. Don't ever forget the greater historical narrative. I'm, I'm setting up a kingdom, and so go into the world and make disciples of all nations, of all nations, of all nations, ethnos. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son 
and the Holy Spirit, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Why did Jesus send them out on that particular mission? Well, because Jesus himself was on a mission. Jesus himself is on a mission. You know what the mission is? It's building a kingdom. He's building a kingdom. He's on a mission to reconcile all things to himself and to bring to fruition a kingdom that will stand forever and never be destroyed. A kingdom that will be made up not only of Jews but of Gentiles as well. It's a mission that will finally be realized in heaven. And yet, while there is a not yet part of this promise, there is an already. We already see it being fulfilled. Right here, right now, where in Colossians 3.11, the church is said that it is something where there is no Greek, no Jew, no circumcised or uncircumcised, no barbarian, no Scythian, no slave or free, but, you ready for this? But Christ is all and in all. See how this keeps coming back to Christ? It just keeps coming back to Christ. Read the book of Colossians. You'll see it again and again. Well, or you can just wait for me to plod through it. If you are a believer, whether Jew or Gentile, your life, according to chapter 3, verse 2, get this, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Hallelujah. I'm the only one saying it here, but I hope a bunch of you are out there saying it. Hallelujah. If you are a child of God, your life is hidden in Christ, with Christ, in God. You belong to him. You are one with him. It, 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 even here in, in uh, chapter 1, Paul talks about the church being his body over which he is the head. And by the way, it's in the same paragraph where Paul is explaining that he is creator God. Creator God, the one who sovereignly rules over all things and has determined from the beginning to create a kingdom that will be made up of Jews and Gentiles. That kingdom will be ruled by a king. And here's the good news. If you know him, you are with him and in God. And there's a name for this, by the way. The name for this doctrine is our union with Christ. Our union with Christ. Um, Randy and I were marveling this morning at, at how uh, his teaching and my teaching recently, we, we don't compare notes, we don't hardly even talk about these things together, um, but I walked into the building, started heading down here while he was teaching Sunday school, and as soon as I walked in, he, I heard him, he was talking about union with Christ. Apparently, that's what the Lord wants you to hear this morning, at least in part. You are with Christ, and you are in God. You're, you're safe. You're secure. Don't let fear rule your life. Don't let discouragement rule your life. Paul's favorite phrase for believers their believer's relationship to Christ, to God, really, is this, in Christ. I was tempted to go to Ephesians and just show that to you. It's all over chapter 1, especially. But in, in all six chapters, I think all six chapters, he uses, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. You are in Christ. That's why some, like Spurgeon, call chapter 1 of Ephesians the believer's checkbook. Why? Because everything that you have from God comes from Christ. Finding Christ is like this. You know what, can we, can we use just an analogy here? And you're familiar with this one. Here's how it goes. It's like a man who is walking across a field and he stumbles upon a treasure and he goes home and he sells everything he has. He sells everything he has out of, and, and here's the way Jesus says it. For joy over it, he sells everything he has. Everything. Why? Because he's a good businessman. He knows that if he could buy that field and get that treasure, it'll be worth infinitely more than everything he has. And that's how Paul looked to Christ. And that's how you should look to Christ. He is worth 
infinitely more than everything you have. What do you have? What do you have that you love? What do you have that you cling to? Your health? You could lose that today. You may, here's a happy thought, you may already be infected. Is that your big fear? Don't let that be a big fear. It shouldn't be your fear. I mean, you shouldn't be reckless with that. We're not calling people just ignore the fact that this is happening. I'm not. But I am saying, while we are trying to be faithful in this world and in this life and submissive to authority, we also need to not be fearful. Because we are with Christ in God. Christ was Paul's treasure for which he counted all things but loss. What do we have in Christ? Want to know why he's the great treasure? Listen to what we have in Christ. I've already said, if you have anything from God, it came to you from Christ. And if you are looking outside of Christ for anything from God, you're not going to get it. Because he doesn't give you anything except through his mediator, who is Jesus Christ. But you are in union with Christ. You are like a vine connected to the branch. You, that, that vital sap of life comes from the vine to the branch. And, and like a head to the body, you are united with Christ. Life comes from him. Wisdom comes from him. Everything you need comes from him. So what has God given us in Christ? Well, in Christ we have election. We have effectual call. We have regeneration. We have faith. That's right. We received faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 say, we have faith, we have justification, we have adoption, we have sanctification, we have perseverance, and ultimately we have glorification where we will find ourselves in the kingdom of Jesus. The biblical authors typically say that we are in Christ and Christ is in us. We are like Christ and we are with Christ. And that's why we can do everything that Christ calls us to do. This is why God, Paul calls it, this phrase, you know that I've been waiting for, the hope of glory. And notice what he says. And let me just I'll put some emphasis at the proper places here. To them, that is, the Gentiles. God chose to make, I'm sorry, the saints. To them, the saints, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. Who is the you? You Gentiles. You Gentile church of Colossae. Christ in you. The hope of glory. The hope of of heaven, or the guarantee of the kingdom, the guarantee of eternal life. Why? Because if you are in Christ, you are with Christ and in God. And everything that he has for you comes to you through him. Because we are in Christ, we also have fellowship with people. We never would have even liked in the flesh. And some people we would have known, never known in the, in the flesh. And think about our backgrounds. I mean, the elders are systematically trying to make contact with every member, every, every family, every household in the congregation. And we've had some really sweet conversations. And sometimes I hang up on the phone and I think, Lord, only you, only you could have done this. I talk to people who are from India. I talk to people who are from Mexico. I talk to people who are from, you know, from Ukraine and from whatever. And here they are. I talk to people who are from New Jersey. I did this week, actually. Uh, someone who desires to come down here and perhaps be a part of our church body. Can you imagine? New Jersey, there are Christians. <laughs> I didn't become one until I left. I thought that was standard procedure. But here's the thing. We love each other. You know, I talked to some of these people and I thought, there's no way. We probably would have never met. 
And if we had met, we would have stayed far away from each other. Our cultures are so different. Our way of thinking is so different. But we have this one thing in common that overrules everything else. We have Christ. We have Christ. And you know what? That's why it pains us to be apart, to be separated. Isn't that amazing? Jews and Gentiles couldn't stand to be together. Now they can't stand to be apart. Now we're family. Now we would throw ourselves in front of the bullet for one another. Because God has called, has, has, has put that affection and deep, deep love for one another in our hearts. So what's a faithful pastor to do? Well, here's what we're supposed to do, what the apostles were supposed to do. We preach the mystery of the kingdom, which is Christ. We preach the mystery of the church, which is Christ. And in case there's any doubt, look at chapter 4, verse 3. He says this, At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. He is the glorious mystery. He is the gospel. In fact, if, if we had time, we would go to, to Ephesians, where Paul, by the way, I think I mentioned this last time, Paul's writing both of these letters at the same time. It's in the same jail, same time period. He no doubt wrote one and said, well, I got time on my hands, so I'll write another. Very similar, these two. And in both cases, he has very similar things to say. And in Ephesians, he says this, not that the mystery is the church or the mystery is the kingdom, but the mystery is the gospel. And I would say the mystery of the gospel is Christ. The mystery of the kingdom is Christ. The mystery of the church is Christ. The mystery of the gospel is Christ. And he is the mystery that we love. He is the treasure in the field. And so perhaps now you understand why when I was studying this this week, it just felt like I, I fell into a hole and looked around and there was treasure everywhere I looked. In the midst of the coronavirus pandemic, man's greatest need is not technology, although we praise God for it. It's not more psychology to soothe our anxious hearts. We don't need that. We don't need more masks, although I was wearing one for fun a little while earlier. We don't need more medicine, although we don't, we don't decry medicine. Everybody takes medicine. We should. But that's not our greatest need. What we need more than anything is more of Christ. To see him more as more glorious than we've ever known him. To delight in him. To rejoice in him to pray and fellowship with him. If you belong to him, then you are in him. And so rejoice. Rejoice in him now, even during a, a global pandemic, especially during a global pandemic. Rejoice in him. Rest in him. Trust in him. Worship him. Talk about him. And you will find your soul soothed and encouraged and strengthened because he is over all and in all. Or a better way to say it is he is your all in all. Beloved, this is the mystery. The God in flesh reconciles Jews and Gentiles now in the church and in his kingdom forever. Lord, these, <laughs> these things are almost too wonderful for us to get our hearts around. If we did, we would be more joyful and happy in our circumstances. We would be less anxious. We would know the joy of fellowshipping with you, running to you as our refuge, our rock, our fortress and finding 
in you, Lord Jesus, everything that God has promised us in Jesus. Lord Jesus, you are the mystery that we have longed for. You are the very thing this world is searching for, though they know it not, and though at this time they seem to hate you. Oh, Father, I pray that by this coronavirus you would pry open hearts to desire to hear the gospel, that there would be great revival in the land, not, not just this land, but on this planet, that many, many, many would be saved. Lord, if that's what it takes, if a global pandemic is what it takes to bring people to humble themselves before their king and find in him life, then bring it. Bring it for your great glory and for their great joy. We ask it in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.